0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Before we start with part three of my three-part conversation with Ellie, I want to just encourage all of you to go to patreon.com indoctrination, patreon.com indoctrination to become a supporter of the show, to help keep it on the air. Anything that you can give to donate to this show to keep it going would be much, much appreciated and needed. And now for the grand finale of my conversation with Ellie. Ellie was raised a third generation Christian scientist in Southern California She left the religion in her late teens and discovered it was a cult, as she says, in her mid-twenties. Her journey of over ten years has been undoing the restrictive thinking and false beliefs imprinted since birth and finding out who she is underneath all of it. What's really beautiful about what Ellie talks about today is that, yes, it is about her experience, and yes, it is about her journey but it is very relatable. Many people listening are going to find ways to tie in what she's saying to their own lives. There are so many lessons here and so much information that I think a lot of people will benefit from. And I hope that it helps you feel connected to each other and understood. Here's Ellie now. So, I want to welcome Ellie back onto the show for what is going to be part three of a three part conversation. So, the last time we were talking about a lot of things, including things like not being able to be angry, be sad, be emoting, and I guess, obviously upset and crying. And also that there was a fear of talking about bad things or of telling secrets. And it leads to having different personas, I think, an outward persona that doesn't necessarily represent what's happening inside And sometimes there can be some confusion about how you're really feeling inside, but it seems like the part that's not confusing is how you're supposed to appear (laughs) and that that seems to be pretty codified. But then how are you able to be authentic and, and not be kind of feeling like you're keeping things from people? So moving on, if you can just take a moment and introduce yourself to the people who haven't had a chance to hear you yet and I hope whoever that is will go back to hear part one and part two because there's a sequence to this but uh go ahead Ellie if you don't mind just quickly introducing yourself and then going to what you think would be best for us to cover today
1: okay great thank you Rachel I'm Ellie I'm a third generation Christian scientist born and raised in a suburb near Los Angeles and I left the cult as a teenager I started realizing that there were some discrepancies in the teachings and it really didn't work for me. And it's been a long journey of figuring out what reality is since then. And it's an ongoing process. I want to say I've made a lot of progress and there's still a ways to go.
0: Mm. I think both things are true as you describe them with a lot of people who have been through something for most of their life up until this point or through the... The years where they are developing, because that does take some doing if there wasn't a way of being in the world beforehand, that this is what you were trained to do from very early on. And so to shift away from that is sometimes a a bigger job, not impossible, but just one that you need a little more, you need to allot a little more time for.
1: I love how you say trained, Rachel. It's so true. It's definitely training. Even as much as it's brainwashing, it's training, a training of a way to be in a world, just like every parent trains their kid the way they want them to be or accidentally trains them the way they don't want to be or that kind of thing. It's very intentional on the point of the parents because they know that the outside world is different and they want the kid to be a good Christian scientist and behave a certain way that's acceptable for the church. And that goes right into what you were saying about expressing feelings and talking about things that are bad. And they're a little different. So I'm going to explain that. So the belief that everything is perfect and good, and that's how it should be, naturally comes to an issue when a person is experiencing something bad or having negative feelings. And I'm going to say negative, the ones that aren't positive in terms of sadness anger, irritation, don't even go into shame, guilt, depression, oh my goodness. And I would say if you're feeling those feelings and no one has any idea, they can't get mad at you. But if it's visible in some way, yeah, they can be upset and punish you for it. If it's crying, if it's being angry, it has to all be invisible. So I would hide if I needed to cry so I wouldn't get punished, try to be as quiet as possible. And if I was angry, that was a little harder to hide honestly, (laughs) at some times, but again, just always better to be invisibly angry or to be not there if you're angry. It's a little hypocritical because the parents got to be angry and sad for some reason, since they were the enforcers of these rules. Not that they didn't try not to. I'm sure they felt guilty about it and beat themselves up for it. But again, there was no one enforcing it on them. Probably their parents did when they were kids, but at the moment it was all on us. And I'm going to add here that Because Christian science is an organized religion and every family lives independently, every family's experience is individual to that family dynamic. So my experience will be different than another Christian science family, but there will be a lot of parallels.
0: Okay. I'm glad you said that though. That really does help clarify because sometimes people will listen in who have been involved in the same group and will say that wasn't my experience, although it was. (laughs) There is exactly what you're saying that there is most definitely overlap if there are some basic tenets and kind of this way of being trained, as we're saying, to be, that that might be fairly uniform, fairly, with other things being slightly different based on, I guess, the personality of the family or the personality of the parents.
1: Exactly, exactly. Even two people in the same situation have a different experience Mm
0: -hmm. in general, Mm
1: -hmm. depending on if they're the strong one the shy one, like the one that's picked on, the one that's ignored. So, but again, like there are some things that are really specific to a family. The part about not talking about bad things is not really specific to a family. That's universal. Christian scientists believe that giving attention to something, talking about it gives it power. And that's a little bit like the idea of the secret or those other like positive psychology manifesting things in a sense of if you only focus on positives, Only good things will happen to you. There is some truth that focusing your attention on positives or not dwelling on negatives is helpful for mental health and for just like going forward, but denying and ignoring bad things is not helpful either. It's not. It's to the point of, it's a fear. It's not just like, I choose not to focus on these things. It's like, oh my God, if I think about that thing, it'll become real. If I think about that cut on my leg, it'll be more real. It'll actually hurt. It could be something bad. If I look at this advertisement for medications on the TV, I might believe it's real and I might believe I need medication and I might stop believing Christian science like to an extreme, right?
0: Wow. Okay. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of people just to not confuse this with people who might be hypochondriacs or people who have a symptom and then go on something like WebMD, which can be invaluable, but also can just always make you think something is tremendously wrong when it might might not be. But this is, Different in that it has kind of this supernatural part woven into it.
1: Mm-hmm. It is. And it's definitely not that the person wants to find out what's wrong. They're not Googling to find out the name or any of the symptoms. They're trying to de- deny any symptoms exist. And they're uh, not everyone, but a lot of people somewhere in there are anxious or worried or terrified that something is really wrong and they won't get better on some level, especially if it's been a while and things aren't getting better or if it's really bad. And they're trying to fight that, push it away and also be like, everything's perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. And then probably feeling a little guilt and shame about struggling with both of that. It's a weird head trip.
0: Wow, okay. Okay, so then to keep with that, then having this outward persona, I have a quick question about that. Were there times that you were mm, having your very trained and refined way of, being on the surface and inside wishing that people would notice that something was really wrong or having that conversation in your head where you were saying I really wish I could say here that I'm feeling sad or were you even worried about having those thoughts
1: that's a good question let's see i was afraid of being noticed that i was having negative feelings because i would be punished definitely wished i could express them without being punished so that I would come out more in art, poetry, whatever creative venture I had, or maybe a little bit to friends at some point, I don't know if I wanted anyone to notice. It wasn't a good idea to be noticed. It wouldn't be a good idea if school or anyone else got involved or came to the family. And at that time in society, it's like, what? I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, the kid was the problem. There wasn't any, oh, there's dysfunction at home. Oh, there's bullying. It was like, this kid is acting out. The parents are right. So the parents were always right. And when things would come up, If I would get in trouble for something at school and couldn't explain it because I wasn't allowed to talk about it or because I saw things differently or whatever, it was always my fault. So it was like, I just wished that they wouldn't have so much control and they would leave me alone and let me be myself.
0: And so I'm wondering when you talk about being punished, that people are going to envision what that means. And I guess for you to clarify what that looks like.
1: Of course. It wasn't abuse. It wasn't physical. It was just, I don't even know. It was like typical parent things, but like a lot, like you can't see your friends or taking away your toys or taking your money, a lot of long conversations or arguments, just that kind of thing. But it's not pleasant, not nice. And no, at some point you do anything possible to avoid it.
0: Interesting. Okay. Cause I'm thinking usually when kids are punished, and I say usually again, going back to this idea that each family kind of has its own culture and value system and parenting style, but that typically would be for acting out and not listening to the parent or being dishonest, something that is behavioral, but not necessarily for being something, not. For being sad. You know, I hear in some families with kids who get punished for being gay, for being trans, for being something. And, you know, that's when they have a sense that there's something so unfair about being punished for how they were created, usually by that family, and just for being without having done anything quote unquote wrong. So was it that you were getting punished just for being, for being? angry or being sad or for crying.
1: That is amazing. I never looked at it that way, but yes, we weren't allowed to be as we were. We had to be the way we were supposed to be, which is why the outside acting that conflicted with the inside feelings or beliefs. So if we were the way we were supposed to be, we were good and perfect and treated pretty well. And if we weren't, then it was well, we need to fix this kid. They conflated behavior with existence, having your own personality or a different way of doing things. It wasn't acceptable. It had to be a certain way.
0: So go ahead. So go ahead, talk, talk more about this outward versus inward persona.
1: Let's see. There's a big focus on the positive and avoiding anything uncomfortable, negative. Oh, just, you know, don't mention it, keep it light and don't tell XYZ about this because that person will get upset because it wasn't supposed to happen. And there's a lot of secrets, a lot of like one family member knows something, but you can't tell the others because the third one will get mad at the first, or this person doesn't believe in that thing. So don't tell them that I do this thing. It could be something very trivial, or it could be something that's bigger and has to do more with their core beliefs and morals. So that gets tiring. As an adult, it still goes on. As a kid, I would say it was more extreme. It became everything that I did that wasn't acceptable had to be a secret. And I mean, that's the thing where they can play the behavior with being like, because the rules were pretty strict. My family was pretty strict. It was like, well, I had candy at school, but that's not okay. So I'll get in trouble if anyone finds out. And it was like, then it was like reading the notes I wrote to friends, listening on phone calls, standing outside the door, listening. If I closed my door, going through my trash can to see what was in there, even to the point of interrogating my friends and my friend's parents about what I was doing. That's like a serious loss of trust is
0: like a betrayal. And it was always like that. Wow. To go through your trash. I mean, you know, some of these things can make kids feel like they're criminals when they're really just good kids. When parents overdo their reaction. When I talk to parents, when they say, you know, I just... I really want my child to respect me more and I want them to listen to me and I can't trust them and I have all their passwords and I check their texts all the time and I go through their garbage and and I just don't think I can trust them. And, you know, to some degree that is necessary in some families, but I will sometimes say to them, what if you change things around and just say, I know you're a good kid and I trust you and I don't need to do these things. And I love that and then a child will often kind of want to reach that bar that you are seeing them through sort of that vision of them as being these good kids as opposed to i don't trust you and you're you must be up to something or we have to watch you cuz that can make kids feel like maybe they aren't trustworthy and then they can say well screw it if i <laughs> my parents already think i can't be trusted then mm-hmm. As well go for it. You know, it can play with your head in both directions if the reaction doesn't match the situation.
1: That's so funny. That's exactly what happened. On one hand, I was like, what's the point of trying to behave if I get punished anyway? What's the point of doing anything they want if I'm not trusted and I'm going to be accused of all kinds of things and not believed? And on the other hand, so much hearing, oh, she's the problem child. Oh, she's such a troublemaker. And having that said a lot, there was a part of me that believed it there was a part of me that knew that they were wrong, but no one else believed me. So it was kind of like an interesting mix. Um, I would say in my family, I was either being like followed around and directed how to do everything constantly, like micromanaged, or I was completely ignored and like left to my own devices, which made an interesting situation. Because when I was alone, I was bored and would look around for things to do and try not to be watched. (laughs) It's like, try not to get attention. So I learned to like, move quietly, to walk without making the forest creak, to open and close doors silently, how to hold your breath if it's completely silent and someone's looking for you in the dark and all these kinds of, and that's why I say it's almost like FBI training in a sense, how to kind of see in the dark. If it's not completely dark, you can see where there's darker and lighter spaces and navigate, how to navigate by touch. Gosh, I don't even, can't even think of all the things, but there's a lot. You learn how to make your face completely blank. You learn how to fake an emotion. So that the other person doesn't know that you're holding something in. It was a lot.
0: I feel like that would just be its own distraction. And I wonder if it became that way that you needed to be so focused on that above other things at times.
1: In the house. Yeah. Outside the house. Not so much. As I got older, I had more freedom and, you know, you get to about high school can go out with friends. They over, they have cars. There's a lot more freedom. Well, in my situation, in some people's situation. So then it was like outside world, inside world, how I have to be with my mask on with my family and how I can let that down a little with the outsiders, but still can't tell the secrets, still can't share all the things because could get back to the parents. It's a whole double life.
0: Wow. Okay. So double life. All right. So let's talk about that because that goes into the whole double life, double agent, <laughs> double, double everything. And so... I think that that does affect how people interact, but it can also make you very skilled at hiding things and potentially also make you, I think, worried about lowering that. hmm, It's like taking off your costume, taking off the mask, uh, because then what? What happens if people see how you're really feeling? Was that a fear of yours?
1: I don't think at first I even knew it was possible. I thought everyone had to protect everything and they only shared what they thought was safe to share. I didn't know other people took risks and were vulnerable and trusted people. I just thought no one was meant to be trusted with those things.
0: Wow. Okay. And that would keep you quite separate, I think, from the people around you, I'm assuming.
1: Well, I didn't know it at the time. That was all I had ever known. And also sharing any weakness or vulnerability was criticized, attacked, or made fun of. So it wasn't something that was ever a good idea in the family. And then, you know, middle school, high school, teens are tough. So that kind of repeats the pattern. That took a long time to shift. Definitely learning who to trust, how to build trust, how much to trust, and how to look for those signs that someone isn't trustworthy. Oh, yeah. You've never trusted someone. You don't know how it works. Just like all the other things, you don't know how it works when you come out of a
0: cult. Wow. Okay. I, I just want to say that when, when people say to me, like family members and friends who have a loved one who's come out of a cult experience or situation or something they were raised in, and they're so happy for them. And, and I will sometimes say, as people have heard me say on this podcast, don't throw a party just yet because there's so much of this of just not knowing if you can trust yourself, if you can trust other people, just being in this kind of, I almost want to say like a purgatory for lack of a less spiritual term, but in in between worlds. And I guess either on high alert or retreat or something, because you don't know how that works. So how did you figure it out about whom to trust?
1: I alert and retreat at the same time, like the little warning sensors that go, alert, alert, something in and shut everything down. And there's no in between. It's like one or the other. How did I learn? Oh, my goodness. Trial and error. Lots of error. I remember I initially thought everyone could be trusted who wasn't my mom, for example. And then that didn't go so well, honestly, because not everyone can be trusted. I got screwed over a lot. It really sucked. And I was angry that my family didn't know how the real world worked and they couldn't teach me and that that the things they taught me to do got me in trouble in the real world. So it wasn't just that they didn't teach me. They also taught me things that don't work in the real world. Like you should forgive everyone. You should love everyone. You should turn the other cheek. These kind of things. It's like, it doesn't work in the real world, Rachel.
0: Right. I do think that uniform messages, the all or nothings don't work. And I know I just made an all or nothing statement. (laughs) So I'm aware of the irony of that. But because there's so many permutations and so many personalities and situations, you know, you can't apply the same thing to everyone, I think, without being hurt. If it matters to you, like if if you want to connect with people, if you want to be able to be in the world, I guess, that's when you notice what works and what doesn't if you're moving away from that world into the world outside. And so when you, right. So you say you got hurt a lot. And so, you know, if you don't mind sharing, what did that do to you for a while?
1: Gosh, and there's something else you said in there that's so powerful and makes me realize why a lot of people have a fear of leaving the cult. Number one, if they're raising it, they know they don't know. And they've been told there are risks and they've me have even experienced risks of, making friends with outsiders and having some kind of clash of values or something that happened that I guess I really wanted it. So I did it despite the risk, knowing there was a risk.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think just being hurt a lot and what that does to people, because for some people, it m- makes them sort of stop wanting to take the risk.
1: I would say, yes. I shut things out for a while and, but was still wanted connection. I'm a people person. That's one reason it was hard to grow up in that situation where it was isolated in terms of like connection to others and not a lot of socializing in the family. So it's always been a motivation. It was really hard. I don't know what else to say, except it really sucked. And I don't wanna discourage other people from leaving and from going out and making connections. I just wish there was a guide for people who are like first time leaving a cult or leaving a cult after a long time, like how the outside world works. and. What red flags to look for when you're dating or in a friendship and how to know if someone's using you and how to use alcohol or drugs safely or choose not to if you want to. And all these situations that are first times for people, because I feel like most other people at least saw them on TV or were exposed to their family or other situations and they have some some frame of reference And coming out with no frame of reference, someone could tell you, oh, this is how it works, and it totally is untrue, but you believe it. Or you could just go in there and go for it and try it out and just totally screw it up and go, oh, gosh. And then I would try again and again and again until I at least figured it out and got it right or good enough. And like, okay, I got that part down. Now what's next? Until I know enough and I'm able to live life in the way I want to for the most part.
0: You know, uh, it's so interesting about uh, needing a guide. I mean, I think that the best people to write that guide and uh, it's so interesting, it's making me think it's something I want to put together, but I just do think the best people to add information to it, and maybe I would just synthesize it, but are the people who've gone through it, you know, the people who understand that kind of very nuanced information and even about asking questions and it's, is it okay to disagree and just all of that.
1: Do I have to ask permission before I do anything? Do I have to ask permission before I ask a question? Yes. And that's true because like Christian science, what they need to know and don't know would be very different from Scientologists or very different from Jehovah's Witnesses or throughout any name of a cult. There are just, there are certain things that just are taboo or not talked about or just really different. So it's all kind of specific be cool, like a whole series of a guide to life for people who never learned because they were in this cult.
0: But I think it's a great idea. I mean, we should probably talk about that at another time because I, I think it is a very practical thing to do. And also it, if there is a guide like that, it saves people the embarrassment of needing to ask.
1: Every day I have to ask who some movie actor is or what some film that someone is talking about or some musical artists. And that's not super relevant or important on some level, but like, think of all the other things that can be so embarrassing, or just people just look at you like you're an alien, like, aren't you from the United States? It's easier to say, no, I grew up in another country sometimes, even though that's not really true.
0: Right. It, it is not true. And it is true because, you know, what is a country? A country is a place that has its own social norms and culture and language and belief system sometimes and history. And, uh, but I do think, you know, also the questions, like when you were talking about having gone to the doctor and then not knowing that if what the doctor prescribes for you doesn't work, that you should probably go back or go to someone else. Those details, like as an adult, can you ask people, is it okay to get a second opinion or that there is even such a thing called a second opinion?
1: That is exactly it, Rachel. Not knowing any of the possibilities, not knowing anything about the framework limits what you could ask. You don't know what you don't know. And they don't know you know nothing. They don't even understand how nothing you can possibly know.
0: Right. And I think when you leave and you are already a full-fledged adult, I think there is this sense that. there's a supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to know this, or you're supposed to know that, but you can only know what you've been taught or what you've seen in practice. And if you haven't had the chance to have either, then you just don't know. Okay. Wow. That is so interesting. So interesting. So I think going back to this idea about learning whom to trust and the red flags and all of that, If you can impart some of the wisdom that you've learned just from day to day and trial and error, and you said mostly error, which is often how trial and error is. But I I wonder what you can guide the listeners to know about from what you've learned firsthand about how to navigate certain personalities and how to know that someone is trustworthy or not, or a situation is trustworthy or not.
1: One thing that's really important is to look at a person's actions, not their words. Another thing is to listen to your kind of gut instinct feeling when you're around someone and trust it. And this is something that has been beaten out of you if you're in a cult, not to trust your instincts, to ignore any weird, funny feelings around anyone or about anything because they don't want you to have those feelings. They want you to just follow how it is. But to get in touch with that feeling and to realize, yeah, this person feels a little uh, or like... This dark alley, I don't know if this is a good idea to be here in this dark alley. It feels kind of creepy. And that getting in touch with that. I would say looking for someone who reciprocates is important. Make sure the person respects you. I guess you have to figure out what that means if you aren't used to what it means to be respected. These, I'm talking about with people, but it could also be supervisors, bosses, work situations. I guess the idea of like, how would you want to be treated? Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Is the other person treating you the way you want them to treat you? It goes both ways. Some people come out and they're so excited and like very used to being trusting and free with everyone and just very loving and give people money and let them come to their house and all those things and get completely taken advantage of by people who come from another world where, oh yeah, we're going to take advantage of that sucker. Like look at this person who's just giving freely or not even realizing how much it costs to that person. So That realization is important.
0: You know, and by the way, these are applicable to everyone. (laughs) And whether you've been involved in a cult or restrictive environment or not, I think these are really good guidelines just in terms of your own safety. I really like the idea of things being reciprocal. When people hear that, you know, their role is to give and to do and to do for which sometimes also happens more for people born female than male, that they forget at times to notice if they're getting back what they're giving or even close to it.
1: It just becomes the way it is or the way it was. Something else I thought of is honesty. And part of that is making sure the actions mask the words. But the other part of it is like, You know, someone thinks someone's cheating. They read the cell phone. There's a text message. It's like, don't deny it. Keep track of all those moments and see if it's a pattern. See if you can talk to the person about it. Don't make justifications. This also applies to everyone. Yes, I'm giving a broad overview of like the biggest things I've learned. And when I say make sure the person listens to you, I mean, if you tell the person I don't want macaroni and cheese for dinner and they say, yes, you do. We're having macaroni and cheese. They're not listening to you. And if that happens for small things, guess what? It's going to happen for a lot of things, because if a person decides that their rights are more important than yours, that's how the whole thing is set up from the beginning. You want compromise. You want to be able to talk to another person and say, hey, I want this. And they say, hey, I want that. And you go, "Okay, how are we going to work it out? You don't want one person making all the decisions. You don't want one person guilting or shaming or blackmailing or just insisting that they're right. And that's so common coming from a cold too, is it's really hard to see it in someone else and realize it's not a good
0: thing. That's so powerful. I mean, just, just thinking about what you've learned by doing by that trial and error, but remembering, you know, it is good to kind of make a list. This is what I know. This is how I now define trust, how I can trust someone and who is trustworthy and why. And I think there are a lot of people who also, when they're listening to podcasts about people who who are just learning how to kind of be in the world in a lot of different ways, they can be listening with compassion and others. I, don't, I think it happens when people are watching certain shows about cults, they can feel... Somewhat superior looking at these people who they think just really don't know things that they should know, and that they will often say, you know, I I would never have, quote unquote, fallen for this, or that wouldn't be something that I would believe. But a lot of what you're talking about are things that I think everyone needs to learn. Sometimes people learn it later on, and we are also all susceptible to influence, and that doesn't, it's not a mark on anyone. I mean, I, as a as- total aside, uh, with a lot less depth to this story than what you just said. So I'm sorry, I'm lowering the bar in this conversation for a moment, <laughs> but I remember for a while working at a place where a lot of the people were very well-to-do. I was helping out and supervising some of the teachers and some of the people who were doing special ed and and, uh, monitoring the work that they were doing. The parents were well-to-do, many of them. And I would sometimes see packs of men and women walking together, looking almost identical to each other and wearing the same rain boots that were the cool rain boots for that season and the jeans that were just the right shade of blue whatever right is and the haircut that was I mean they all looked like quintuplets and we <laughs> just like walking and like and I think a lot of them would probably think that they were above being influenced but oftentimes I wanted to say to these men and women so what are y'all wearing tomorrow? <laughs> they were sure that they were all thinking independently, but they weren't because there's an influence. There's an influence through marketing. There's an influence about what's cool and what's right. And it changes, you know? And so I think for anyone out there thinking that they're above this influence, they are not. We are not. That's why marketing works.
1: Yes. Like one person has grown up in typical America and hasn't been exposed to millions of commercials and TV shows with embedded messages of racism and sexism and preferences for certain activities and social judgments and moral judgments. I didn't have all that. So my worldview is better in that way, in a sense. I had nothing, I had a blank slate. So I had to draw it all from experience. I feel like I'm not as affected by the marketing and the advertisements because it's never been a part of my life. It was always, don't believe the things you hear. Don't listen to that. They're just making it up to try to influence you. That was the message I was given if I ever ran into it like outside of the home or something. So it was from the beginning was like, this isn't real.
0: And also thinking about the irony of that statement. They're just making it up to influence you.
1: (laughs) Ah, right. These days with all these different People putting their belief systems out there is the right one. All the different camps we see on the news vying to be the correct and the right group and have their opinions and beliefs like certified and accepted. It's all the same. They all say the other ones are all wrong. We have the only answers. They use fear. They tell people something bad will happen if you don't listen to us. The other people are wrong. They're a danger. It's actually really a lot of the same thing and social media amplifies the amount of influence someone can have on others.
0: Right. So I wonder also with you having had these going back to the beginning of our conversation, just as I know we're getting close to the end of our time, I wanted to kind of come full circle, but also give you a chance to say whatever you haven't yet had a chance to say during this episode. But to say that, you know, when people have different an outward and an inward world, basically that sometimes don't match up in thinking back, Were there people you remember being around or being raised around where you thought that they were unhappy but couldn't show it, or you knew they were unhappy and just couldn't reveal it? Or was everyone keeping it so well hidden that it was hard to know?
1: Oh, no, I knew. There's the way people look and the way their eyes look. You can see people's eyes. They're sad, they're tired, they're afraid. I mean, I guess I had to learn to read faces a lot because the family never talked about emotions and never shared their feelings. And the only way you would know is if you sent their energy and looked at the body language and the face, you just had to figure it out without words. But then there's this whole, like, they put on more of a positive, happy show with outsiders or even other people in the religion to look good. And then at home, they're a little different. There's like, you know, oh, things are wonderful, but I'm going to complain for 20 minutes about this other thing. and then make up a reason why God says that's okay. And then come back to, I'm so happy again. It's not genuine. I always say, if you go into a church or any kind of religious place and people are too happy, that's not a good thing.
0: Right. I mean, I think also going back to general society, I mean, we have the expression here where people say they're fine. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Or I'm good. And someone who can read, just as you're saying, someone who can read faces or a really good friend would say, no, you're not. (laughs) I can totally tell.
1: And that's the required answer for a Christian scientist. Your I'm fine is the required answer, no matter what. If a person falls... And breaks their leg. I bet you anything. If someone says, how are you doing? They'll say, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I just broke my leg, but I'm fine. I've said things like that in my life. Not about the broken leg, but things that are similar enough.
0: Like what sort of things?
1: Oh gosh. I don't know. Let's say like I passed out after something, like some sports exercise. Oh, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. Just don't tell anyone. Go away. Leave me alone.
0: Wow. You know, the clean slate. So just to talk about that for a moment, because now, I mean, People are lucky enough to be living in a time in certain parts of the world, in certain neighborhoods and certain family units where it is okay to be you, just separate from fitting into a particular mold that not everyone needs to have the same look or the same belief and they can be out there. And sometimes there are certain people you come across where they are really just very much themselves. You've never met anyone else like them. And I and I find that more now than than before with people also identifying in ways that are along a spectrum where it isn't just this sort of singular or black and white kind of one side of the spectrum versus the other side, totally the other pendulum swing to the other side, but all of the permutations in the middle. And... I don't know if that has freed you at all to feel like as you are this clean slate and you develop that there isn't necessarily a right way or a wrong way, but there's the Ellie way. and it, do you feel a little free or are you worried about doing it the quote unquote wrong way because of your early teachings?
1: Gosh, after all this time, I would say I spent a long time exploring all the possibilities in terms of meeting different people, hanging out with different groups living in different areas, because um, I wanted to know what the options were. And I found some things I liked in each area and picked, pulled it in and found things I didn't like and let it go in that sense and as part of becoming me. However, there's always a fear in the back of my mind that I would get in trouble for something about being myself. So I'm a little cautious. I wait to be myself until I feel like the other person or whatever the situation is, is safe to do that. And so I am holding myself back in a lot of places for safety and it sucks. But again, it's survival. Survival is the first. That's what we learn. Like even one of my friends pointed out when I go to a new place, like I can immediately imitate people's behaviors. Like I'm ready to fit in and just not be noticed and not stand out, not on
0: purpose. It's an interesting skill. I don't know if it's a skill. It is a skill actually, but just like with anything, if it's not used all the time and you find out in what context it works for you and in what context it's actually not necessary and what works against you, because then you don't actually get to have people truly meet you.
1: Right. More and more, I'm finding that like my first instinct is usually based on how I was raised. And then I don't always, I wouldn't choose that. Like I might choose to be myself and my first instinct is to be careful. So I have to look at it and say, okay, is this what I really want to do? Do I want to choose a different way to be or am I going to go to my default?
0: Interesting. So it's a conversation you have with yourself in a lot of environments, I guess, when especially newer environments.
1: Yeah, all the time, actually. It's tiring. It's like always having to be aware of why I'm doing what I'm doing.
0: Right. So I'm hoping over time, because of early conditioning and training, there will also be your own conditioning and training based on real life experiences where you accumulate that information and then don't need to go through all of the inner reflection and worry in that moment, but that there potentially have been enough times where you can say to yourself, I was actually worried, but I didn't need to be.
1: That is a big piece of it. It works really well. I would say the downside is if you go and have contact back with other cult members, if it's family or friends or something, the mentality, it just like pulls you right back to it. Like I made progress and then I have to be back in touch with them or something. And then it's like, Oh, we have to go back to all those default modes. It's always there. It's like always at the bottom of everything waiting, but it's different because I used to be always like, This is what I want to do, but I have to stop myself. This is what I feel, but I have to shut it down. So it's the other way around. It's like I have better chances and more opportunities to be myself rather than always having to shut everything down. So it's a much better situation.
0: I'm so glad to hear that. And so I want to thank you for uh, sort of taking on the hard task, I think, of talking about these things, but also needing to narrow it down Because it's, you know, decades of experiences, but also in a continual sense, because there is still the growth and the change and the insight and the triumphs and the trials and all of it that's all happening in real time as we're talking. But I value how much you were able to educate people about Christian science and also about the potential fallout from being raised with certain tenants that were built into the system. Your struggles are very real and relatable to, I think, everybody. And I'm just happy that you're getting to experience life and enjoy it and develop certain strengths and certain confidence. And I wish you well, and I wish you joy and lots of smiles that are very real. You'll
1: know if you see my eyes. Although this is a podcast, you can't see my eyes. I promise that was a real smile. You can hear it in the laugh too. You can hear it if you listen. Thanks, Rachel.
0: You're very welcome.
1: It's not easy, but it's really nice to make your own choices. It's just really nice to choose the life you want.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful, Ellie. You're great. And we will talk again. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Ellie for continuing the conversation with us. I'm glad you got to hear the grand finale. I think it is so true that there's so much more to talk about when people tell these stories. But I know that Ellie made sure to put together a lot of stories and thoughts and facts that she wanted you to know. And I hope it gives you a picture of her life growing up and also her challenges now because of her life growing up. Also, to anyone who wants to tell their story on the podcast, there are some people who are telling their stories here for the first time. And I think Just putting it together, just writing down what left a mark and what made a good impression and what things you've seen in yourself since you've left or whatever you want to talk about, just for the first time. It's like mm, refining how you feel, understanding why you feel the way you do. For some people, writing it all down was like one of their first times journaling about their experiences and also researching the group that they were in. Because as we've said on the show, many people who grew up in particular organizations knew very little about it and about its history because they were often barred from accessing that information. So some people have actually found out quite a lot more than they would have otherwise just by leaving the group that they were in and being able to research it and then being able to share it with you. When Ellie talked about the fact that she is becoming her, I think the phrase she used was, as a part of becoming me, she went on to say that she's still afraid that she's going to do it wrong. So that whole idea of being able to be you is quite liberating and anxiety-producing. It means that you have moved beyond the mold You've moved beyond an idea that how you are is predetermined and preordained and that your life is the same and that everything has already been written in stone. You are carved in stone. But the truth is that people can change over time. People can morph over time. That whole idea of you can't teach an old dog new tricks, it's actually not true. It depends how much capacity you have to learn new things, and how much interest you have, how much it matters to you. And so it matters a lot to Ellie, and I'm sorry that she has to worry about doing it wrong, somehow getting it wrong. One of the things to know, though, is that while you're developing a sense of self, it can change over time. Some of the things that mattered to you before might not matter to you now or might not matter to you in the future. Some of your personality traits might change a bit here and there depending on your life experiences. But one of the things that's also good to know, though, is this whole idea that you're going to do it wrong often comes from a cult environment because within a cult, there is a right way and a wrong way. And it's very hard to get it right. And it's very easy to get it wrong. And so if it's possible to start to define yourself, as I actually think it is, then I think one of the things you can do if you want to be able to figure out a way to tackle it is to start by defining what you're not. And if you think you are not a racist, to whatever degree, and if you think you're not actually very religious now that you've left, or if you think you're not very competitive, mm, because it doesn't matter to you if you win or lose a game that you've been playing since you left, all those things help to kind of create a picture. And sometimes it is harder to just define you without having that clear sense about what you're not first. And then once you take things off of yourself, what are you left with? And that's when I think you can start defining what you are and who you are. What matters to you? What matters to you now that maybe didn't before? What interests do you have now you get to explore that you couldn't before? What makes you angry? and what makes you sad, what makes you happy, those are part of who you are. One of the confusing things, though, that's good to keep in mind is that you're still shedding this other personality, which will happen more and more over time as you define yourself. And one of the things, though, that can happen is a bit of a coldness. People sometimes raised in cults, When they don't have the language of feelings or they don't have the compassion for other people because they may have learned that if something bad happens to someone, they brought it on themselves or, you know, this whole idea of preordination and this was just the way it was supposed to be or meant to be, that can really cut down on sympathy or empathy or compassion at all. But if you notice over time that you're starting to feel more, you're starting to connect more, those feelings can be very uncomfortable because you're not used to them. But they can also help you to be a friend and to be someone who is there for other people, for you to be able to treat someone in those moments the way you probably wished you had been treated. And so, as you explore who you are, I want you also to understand that one of your challenges is going to be to like who you are and to not be judgmental. Of that person as you define yourself. How you are is fine. But if there are things that you want to change, if there are things you want to improve, if there are ways that you are that you're not happy with, then that's something you can work on. It's never too late. So I welcome you to go on that journey of self discovery and please do it without. Being a judge or jury to yourself and get a sense of who you are. And the reason it matters is that if you have a sense of who you are, it's much harder to be controlled. It's much harder to be taken advantage of. If you think that you're a good person, let's say, and then potentially you deserve to be treated well, as anyone really does, but especially if you feel like you're nice then you might not tolerate being mistreated if you're still going by the old definition of yourself as being hmm, a bad person or being a sinner, someone who needs to be kept in line. So the more you have a sense of who you are, the more you're going to be able to talk to people about what you deserve and what's right for you and stand up for yourself and have clarity. And I think it'll feel good and it's also okay to change your mind again it doesn't have to be set in stone and so don't feel limited by your self definition and don't feel also that you have to do it all on your own when people are growing up outside of a cult they will take in other people's assessments of them and take them to heart at times sometimes dismissing them as wrong and sometimes hmm trying them on for size And so you can ask people whose opinion you value and respect, how they see you. And see if you can take that on. Doesn't mean they are absolutely right, especially if they're in a position of authority. Don't assume they're absolutely right about you. But again, reach out, get people's insights, see how people take you, and incorporate that into your vision. Have it be fluid and enjoy the journey. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.